Hey everyone, this is JP. Real quick before we start today, I want to tell you about an app called Train Your Ears. If you listened to the EQ episode, you heard me talk about Train Your Ears. And it's an app that really helped me to get my ear around the frequency spectrum. So if you're struggling to hear 200 hertz versus say 300 or 400 hertz, I highly recommend this app to you. Go to www.trainyourears.com slash MPT as in music production talks. And if you buy it via that link, we get a small kickback and we would really appreciate the support. Thanks so much. And on with the show. Hello and welcome. Each week on Music Production Talks, join me, Chris Jacoby, and me, JP Ruggieri, as we skip over teaching you how to make fat beats and record screaming electric guitars. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And instead, we're going to jump straight into having nuanced conversations about producing music that actually says something. If you're a musician that wants to discover how to actually record your songs in a way that you want them to sound, or you're a producer that's looking to hone your skills. Or maybe you just want to hear interesting stories from the other side of the glass, so to speak. You are in the right place. All right, let's get on with the show. All right, everyone, how's it going? Welcome back to you. Welcome back to me, because I was out last week um, on an awesome session. That was so much fun. I'll tell you a little bit about it in a bit. Um, and welcome, Chris. How's it going, man? It's going great. I'm glad I got my uh, my podcasting partner back. Last week yeah. was a challenge. Yeah, we we ended up the days ended up being a lot longer um, than we initially thought. But just a, a, a quick geek out for everyone out there because we're obviously all into music and recording. Uh, I was recording with uh, a really great artist, Chris Casper. If you don't know him, check out his record, Oh the Fool. I've been obsessed with it ever since it came out in 2018. It's amazing. Um, and we were recording at the studio in Nashville, which is one of my favorite spots in town. And uh, we're going to have the engineer. Just to be clear, it's literally called The Studio, right? That's the name, The Studio. Well, it's actually, I, I think the full name is The Studio Nashville. Okay, got it. Yeah. It's a little confusing. Um, yeah, it is. And we we will have the engineer, uh, the main engineer of that studio on the show at some point in the near future. He's a great dude and a dear friend. Um, but we are recording live to 16-track tape, two-inch reel-to-reel. Um, the computer was literally turned off for the whole week and... Uh, Oh my God, it was just so amazing to make music in that way. And this was my first time recording to 16 track. I've recorded to 24 track and all different formats. Um, I've never recorded to 16 track. And it was a really cool experience for me because I have that machine that we were recording on uh, is an MCI 24 track. Um, and I've made records on that machine before, um, when it was a 24 track and the engineer at the studio, Brooke Sutton just switched the heads out to 16 track and like recalibrated the whole machine and stuff. And so this is, I, I know the sound of that machine and, um, 
This was my first time doing it with the 16 track heads. And basically what that means is if you're recording on two inch tape, if you have 24 tracks, the real estate of the tape that is being recorded on gets divided up evenly before, uh, between those 24 tracks. If you only have a 16 track tape machine, then there's basically more space for each track to have audio content recorded to the tape. So basically like 16 track, two inch is like the Cadillac of tape machines. <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to my tech the other day, uh, Will Tyson, this guy that I bring all of my broken gear to, which happens all the time. And he he, he was like, yeah, man, recording a 16 track is like almost gluttonous. <laughs> it's like, that's uh. a great way to put it. <laughs> But man, when I walked into the control room for the after the first take, and and we were, we were like, yeah, let's just go and ch- check out sounds. And I heard the playback; I was just blown away by the difference, and it, it was just immediately so tangible to me that uh, the change in sound and the amount of depth and the tightness on the bottom end—it was oh god, it's so good and. Like a spiritual experience or something. Yeah, one of those experiences that you're so grateful for. And then also you're like, I kind of wish that never happened because now all I want is a 16 track. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I feel like with gear, you know, there's so many times you're like, you know, you shoot something out and it's like a 1% change. And you're like, okay, whatever. Right. And this to me sounds like it was significant enough. Yeah. Significant change. Yeah, totally. So anyways, that's that. But today we're talking about, uh, well, a record that I'm sure was recorded on tape. Nope, uh, it was not. It was not. Okay, awesome. I'm glad to hear that. That's really cool. So this was recorded on Pro Tools. It, it, it this, came out in 2003. This was recorded on a radar, which a is radar. Okay. like a hard disk digital recorder that functions a lot like a tape machine. Like there's no, there is an option. I used to have one. There's an optional screen, but you don't have to use the screen. You can literally just kind of have it sitting in the corner. Uh, I think it, I think mine was 24 tracks and you can expand to 48 or whatever if you want, but you don't have to look at the audio and punching in and out feels just like a tape machine. So it's pretty cool. And the converters sound awesome. So maybe that's part of what we're hearing. Why did you sell yours? Uh, well, I bought it because I was really in a Lanois phase. And one of his um, kind of principles is that each piece of equipment only does one thing. So Pro Tools records, but you can also edit on it and you can also mix on it. I think now he uses Pro okay. Tools, but I think at the time he was like, I have these preamps or like this console is my preamp, or I use as the preamps, and then I go to this hard disk recorder, and it only does recording, and then I come out into a separate console, which I only mix on, mm. and like everything's kind of divvied up, and I like that idea, so I bought one, and then it just seemed to be like completely impractical for, <laughs> <laughs> I was like trying to like sync it up with Pro Tools, and that wasn't working, so I ha- was having to like record stuff to the radar and then dump it to the pro tool system and like the hard drives are all formatted different it was just like a total pain in the butt i will say the few times that i was like tracking basics on it 
and it was just like, I'm just using it as a tape machine. It was great. But then like the rest of the record was a nightmare. So, so basically it's like a DAW except, um, it's got the feel of a tape machine. I wouldn't even call it a DAW cause it's not really a workstation. Like you can't really edit on it. I mean, you can, but it's like really cumbersome. You might be able to like copy and paste something somewhere, but like it's pretty much just like a digital tape machine. Basically, there's just no tape. It's just a hard disk. But oh, I, and I think the reason it probably worked for Lanois is he had all the gear from an analog studio and all that changed right. was he subbed out the tape machine. Whereas when I had it, I didn't have all the outboard gear or whatever. And I didn't realize how much I was relying on Pro Tools until I got rid of it. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I don't have any like compressors or anything. Right, like yeah. it was just like it, my whole world just fell apart when I got that thing. But right. Um, yeah. Anyway. Well, um, okay. Well then the radar that that's cool. Um, well, the, the, the track we're talking about today is called as tears roll by it's by D- Daniel Lanois. Um, who, if you don't know who that is, then I don't know how to help you. <laughs> Fortunately, <laughs> um, uh, yeah, let's you tell people a little bit. But <laughs> Daniel Lanois is the producer. Um, uh, he's uh, you know one of the greatest pr- record producers of our time, and uh, you know everything from U two to Willie Nelson to Bob Dylan to Emily Lou Harris to I mean the list goes on. He's he he's the guy who um did Emily Lou Harris's Wrecking Ball and um one of my favorite Willie Nelson records called Teatro. Um and if you haven't heard that album, man, you gotta listen to that. It's amazing. The songs are incredible. Um one of my favorite Bob Dylan records, which is Time Out of Mine. I mean he's just he's a genius. And uh the re- the record we're talking about today is off of a solo album of his because he's also a really great singer songwriter, and this album came out in two thousand three, and it was his first solo record that he put out in like ten years, I think. It's his third one. It's called Shine, and it's just so so good. And actually, you turned me on to this album probably like ten years ago, Chris, I think. And um, there's a track on it call as tears roll by that is the most bizarre sounding thing (laughs) it's such a bold sounding track like the drums are panned to the left and everything is really scooped out and you have this dry ass vocal that's right up front and doubled and i i i feel like the vocal is the only thing that is not like heavily eq'd it's like everything else sounds Mm. like he cut out a lot of the bottom end and and it's very mid-rangey and then you just mm-hmm. have this full sounding vocal come in and it just sounds massive right and i i i have so many memories of this track of like hearing that intro and just um expecting when the vocal came in for everything to expand because all the sounds are very un- understated on this track and they never like the sounds n- never open up they always stay small like that and, right um it's 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 a really cool thing um but yeah it starts off with this resonator guitar i think it's a 
resonator and it turns out it's a um it's a it's a charlie uh charlie Patton um loop that it's a sample right that he sampled yeah and slowed down too yeah i went and because he mentioned uh lanwa mentioned that he sampled it but he didn't say what song it was so i kind of went on a little youtube hunt and i think it's this song called high water everywhere and about a minute in there's like a little turnaround and he plays this guitar but it's way faster i think lanois snipped it and slowed it way down this song's about i think i clocked it at like 94 bpm and apparently he made this loop for time out of mind the dylan album i think he'd gone into that album thinking it was going to be a lot more programming and loops and things and then yeah. bob dylan and his typical bob dylan-ness was just like no we're not doing that and yeah so lanois ended up with all these kind of loops and things that were prepared and sitting around and not getting used. And this was one of those. Um, so who, I mean, who knows what the guitar was? I don't know if it's, it's so old sounding, like the recording's so old sounding, it's kind of hard to tell what the heck I'm hearing. And then it's pitched down. So that's going to change the timbre and stuff. But yeah, it's, it's a great sound. And, um, I love the difference in sound between the Charlie Patton guitar, which is panned left, and then the acoustic guitar that is panned right that comes in, right. which is like super bright and it's got yeah. a lot of top end on it. And um, it's just, they're just total opposite sounds, but they're kind of playing the same thing too. It's kind of. Yeah, kind of I felt cool. like arrangement wise, like all the instruments on this song are kind of just staying in their lane it's pretty simple sounding to me i mean maybe the steel swims around a little bit but like and the steel i steel's amazing on this track yeah we'll get to that we'll get to that yeah but it's like everyone's (laughs) just kind of chilling like no one's really doing anything crazy which is which is cool yeah and it it seems Um, like they kind of keep it interesting by a lot of different harmonies are coming in and out um throughout the song and there's kind of that staggered entrance at the beginning where it's like it starts with the guitar and then like the drums come in and the bass comes in and then the piano comes in or so i can't remember the exact order but it's like yeah not everyone comes in at the top but once they're in they all kind of stay in it seems like but yeah yeah the the background vocals are are insane it it sounds like um i mean at one point one comes in like I think it's more towards the end. One comes in right in the middle, and it's like it's way overpowering. It's louder than the, the lead, lead vocal. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. like way louder harmony. than the lead vocal. Yeah, it's so, so weird. weird. It's like, yeah, that's the thing about this. There's so many weird choices. Yeah, uh, and and yeah, you said bold earlier, and it's like, man, I just don't know if I'd have the balls to do that. You know, I know. <laughs> I was listening to it in the car this morning, and like. I mean, I've been obsessed with this track since I first heard this album. I can't tell you how many times I've listened to it. And still, and I, I love it. I love it so much. And I was listening to the cuts when I had the exact same thought. I was like, if I was mixing this record and I went for a drive in my car to like do the car test or whatever, I would be like, I can't do this. <laughs> I'm, I'm totally <laughs> going to come up after this me. Song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, but uh, I just. I mean, everything about it is great. Um, 
yeah the the back the background vocals are they they uh they almost seem like um like they're low passed to me like like they're, mm. they're so muddy sounding and especially there's this one on the left hand side that comes in more towards the beginning and it sounds like he's just cranking the low mids on it like and it's like did you hear that yeah that but one? i i feel like all the vocals kind of have that and my immediate you know when i when i put on this track my first thought was like whoa weird panning and then the vocal came in and uh it just sounds like he's either using a ribbon mic or whatever mic he's it's a little brighter sounding than maybe a rhythm, but I guess that could be EQ, but it just sounds like he is like eating the mic on mm-hmm. all of it. Like there's so much proximity effect and there's no like EQ in that out. Like he just leaves right. it. Um, yeah. And maybe that's why he's able to get away with such a, like this is like a very loud vocal, I feel like in comparison yeah. to the track. And maybe it's because there's not all that, you know, high end, information it probably is a ribbon and then he's just like turned it way up and so you are able to hear some some highs but i don't know um i know he i know he basically uses like the same four or five vocal mics on everything um could be any of those yeah the the track to me like it's got the vibe of and you could tell me if i'm wrong on this chris but like the first thing that came to mind when I was listening to this today with like a real uh, analytical hat on was like, whoa, this is, it's got that dynamic microphone sound to me. Like I just instantly thought of, perhaps yeah. like, there's gotta be a ton of dynamics on this track. Uh, yeah. He, he does. Um, what, so anyway, I wrote down all the mics that he basically uses for vocals and it's like Sony C37A, uh, which, which is do what? I I said want one, and then I was waiting for you to list off the, the rest oh, of them. Oh yeah, I was sorry. just gonna. I was just uh, gonna. I was gonna get it. want um, one. Want and, one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'll go down the list then. U U forty seven. Want one. RCA forty four. Want one. RCA seventy seven. Want one. And a Sennheiser four oh nine. Yeah, sure. I'll take one. <laughs> I'll take one. <laughs> um, so the so the C thirty seven. Was kind of Sony's answer to the U forty seven, and what he's talked about in interviews is that if you get really close to a a U forty seven or any kind of tube mic, the moisture from your mouth will like crap the capsule out, um, like in the middle of a performance. So, and he says that the C thirty seven doesn't really do that, so you can really eat it. It's also small, so if you're doing some like video stuff it kind of stays out of the shot and then the 44 is like your your big you know kind of bing crosby crooner sound a lot of proximity effect 77 i think has a little less and the 409 sennheiser makes one i think it's called the 609 that looks similar it's like that paddle looking dynamic mic that people like they can hang over the guitar amp instead of having to get a stand for 57 but i think the 409 Sounds quite a bit different and has a different capsule than the new ones, which of course they were like, "Oh, these are cheaper," and so they started making those. Right. Anyway, there you go. Yeah. So who knows? 
So who knows? <laughs> all that to say, buy them all. Buy them all, and you'll be good. I, I, uh, what, what else did you discover for this track? Uh, well, I'll stay on the vocal for just half a second. I know he typically uses an LA two A, and this vocal does sound fairly compressed to me. Um, and I feel like he does that a lot. Like I feel like the Emmylou Harris stuff, the vocals is just like eating the mic and slamming the compressor. That's like yeah. his thing. Um, okay, so I've got a wild theory about the the rhythm of this track, um, okay. which may or may not be true. There's We'd have to ask him, but, um, so in college I had this thing called this, my roommates had this organ called a fun machine and it was like this weird organ. I literally think they found it on the side of the road or something like that looks cool. And they picked it up and brought it to our place and it had like two layers of keys and then on the left side, um, there was like auto bass and drum machine, yeah. you know, you'd pick like Foxtrot or whatever. Totally. And yeah, then yeah. as you're playing, you hit like the, you know, an A and it plays this like walking bass line or whatever. And then you yeah. go down to the D and like, it never quite works. Cause I think they're all major or something. Yeah. But, right. Uh, yeah. I know that, uh, Lanois is really into that, like the sound of the bass on those weird, kind of auto bass things the omnichord has some auto bass he also uses mm. the rhythm ace which is like uh it's basically just the drum section of one of those weird organs so you can't change the pattern of what you're doing but um it'll make a little beat and he's used that quite a bit on some of the ambient stuff he did with brian eno and the trixie whitley record and in interviews, he's talked about like the quality of that bass being like this jukebox bass sound that he's going for. And one, I think this upright kind of has a little bit of that. It doesn't really sound traditionally like an upright to me. Like it's definitely got some bottom end added to it. But my other theory is that along with this uh, guitar loop, that he probably had one of those beats going that they were playing to. Specifically, I think it's the rock two beat on the Omnichord. If you listen to that beat, uh, which I looked up on YouTube, it's like, oh, you would totally play that drum and bass part to that groove. And then I think he just muted in the mix. I have no way of knowing. But when I heard this track, I was like, it reminds me of like that weird like crappy organ auto bass drum loop thing it just has some quality about it that's similar to that or maybe you know he just was like hey i want it to kind of feel like this and the players kind of interpreted that yeah and i i've heard lanois talking about that before where he brings in stuff um old recordings for his for his band to play to, and then he mutes the recording. Oh, afterwards. yeah. That's so, cool. I've never tried that. Yeah. Or it was either Lanois or Dylan. It was one of those, those two masterminds, um, t- talking about that as being part of their process. Um, yeah. And then so, Tom yeah, Waits could... does the like play two songs at the same time and try to find oh, yeah. something in the middle. That's just bizarre to me. Yeah. Uh, Oh, cool. I'm gonna have to try that because I've certainly made like, you know, loops and stuff to play to and then you mute them later because like the Pro Tools click 
sound is just like the worst thing to start recording yeah, to. Not inspiring to. And um, that's interesting. Did I ever send you the track off my record that I've been working on, Fun Machine? No, did you use a yep. fun machine on it? Yeah, yeah, that's why I know it. Yeah, so Wait, do you have real, one? No, but real, real quick, I'll tell the story at this at the studio in Nashville, the same place I was just talking about. When we were recording the basics uh, for my record, um, there's a fun machine there, and um, my friends uh, Jono and Jordan, who were on the session with me, so. Jono got on the fun machine and there was an upright piano right next to it and Jordan got, started playing some weird like Thelonious Monk lines or something. And then I, I and Brooke hit the record button and so I didn't really have anything to do. So I just walked around the room like 30 feet behind them going, uh, welcome to the fun machine. <laughs> <laughs> And that track's going to be right in the middle of the record. And it's oh my basically gosh. like the greatest thing ever. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We had, we had the fun machine and I had this, uh, like pump organ that I'd bought for like 200 bucks or something. And, uh, it was like a quarter step sharp. Yeah. And there's no way to tune them. those unless you like, you know, shave the reeds down or something. Yeah. They're all out of tune. Well, the one we used on the Rivoli record in Alabama was not, but apparently uh, the studio owner paid like three grand for it because he right. found one oh in tune God. and it's like impossible to find. But we, yeah, yeah we wow. would get we would get drunk and play the fun machine and then the quarter step sharp pump organ at the same Amazing. time and just chaos. That's um, awesome. Yeah. So anyway, that's my theory about the, the rhythm. Um, that's cool. I really, yeah, I like that. Um. Uh, I have some thoughts on the pedal steel that I have to talk about because it's it's so um, it's so wild because it's just it's the only instrument really that's just playing like all over the track like everything else kind of has a little part and it's all understated and then the pedal steel is just this sound on the right hand side that's just he's going nuts on it and he's like mm -hmm. playing all over the vocal and it's just doing its own thing it seems but somehow it just fits in so perfectly well and um i i don't know i just thought like that that's always stood out to me because as a, as a musician you know you're always thinking like don't step on the vocal don't step on the vocal don't step on the vocal and here's this track that's basically stepping all over the vocal and it's really cool and um when i first started playing steel i remember um just trying to figure out for like the first couple of years how lanois got the steel sound on this record is so uh lo-fi sounding and i could never figure it out until one day i this is a few years back i was like I don't know, I didn't have my amp or something. And so I was like, whatever, I'm just going to DI my steel because I feel like playing right now. And as soon as I played the first note, I was just like, oh my God, the sound. <laughs> so for all of you, if there's anyone out there who plays pedal steel, um, if you haven't tried to DI your steel yet, uh, it's a really cool sound and you should do it. Is what kind of pickup is it? Isn't that like a real? Sp he uses like a single coil or something. Isn't that kind of like his thing? I don't know. 
It's a good question. I, and he I also doesn't he, use finger picks, right? He yeah, it's all... he, he doesn't use finger picks. He's got an old sh- sh- show bud, so it's probably a single single coil. Um, and he plays in a different tuning than pretty much everyone else. What is it? I don't know. It's some weird thing that if I had like f- four hours to retune my pedal steel, I would do it. But I don't really? feel like <laughs> I just assumed it was like E9 tuning or whatever. No, it's not. No, he kind of came up with his own tuning. And um, that's probably he why his, he would do. That. Yeah. 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 I mean, he's yeah, he's totally has his own voice on that instrument. And um, it's a very specific thing that works in specific areas um yeah and it's it's great when it does from what i've read that was his first instrument his mom bought it from like a door-to-door instrument salesman or something yeah totally so bizarre yeah it's wild could you imagine some guy just like coming knocking on your door and selling a pedal steel no (laughs) door-to-door salesmen are so rare now i feel like it's like pesticide companies and like right tree trimmers are the only people we ever get um yeah but yeah certainly not uh instrument salesman and i think maybe he was selling lessons too i think that was the thing he's like hey yeah yeah get a pedal steel and then i'll give him six lessons or whatever um yeah anyway it worked out it worked out worked out pretty good for him but uh so what else did you find on this on on your digging um well I'm I'm guessing it's Brian Blade on drums. It is, yeah. It's for sure Brian Blade because I know Brady yeah. Blade, the Blade Brothers played on this. Blade Brothers, but this yeah. sounds like Brian to me. Um, yeah. If you don't know who Brian Blade is, you got to go on a. We can't help you. No, we can't help you. Just <laughs> stop listening. No, just go on YouTube and like watch him play. He's incredible. Amazing. He's like one of the most. Um, he's just a joy to watch. One, he looks like he's having so much fun and he's so in the moment and he's so dynamic. I mean, he'll go from like nothing to like this huge explosion and then like back to nothing. And you're like, why did he do that? And you have no idea. It's, he just did. And it worked. Yeah. Um, so this is Brian Blade. And to me, it sounds like uh, it's kind of a high tuning across the board probably uh resonant heads on everything uh i don't know about symbols i know that brian blade uses these um i think they're vic firth sticks called the sd1 and i bought a pair of these sticks and it's a huge part of his sound i mean i can't play like him at all but uh the way it sounds on symbols that first of all they're maple sticks where i think most drumsticks are hickory and then it has like a really round, tiny tip on it, whereas most have that kind of acorn looking tip. And dude, it just like that on a ride cymbal is basically the greatest sound in the world. Oh, interesting. That's cool. Um, but I did find what they used on the drum mics. It is a U47 on the overhead, mono, mono. 57 on the hi-hat. And then uh, Lanois said across this record, it's either a D12 or a Coles on the kick. I'm guessing on this track, it's a Coles because there's not a lot of attack. There's barely any kick drum on this track. Like yeah. if you listen to the bottom, it's mainly the bass yeah. carrying it. And then the drums are just kind of high. And it sounds like not like a super dead room 
It sounds like that U forty seven's getting a little bit of roomy. Yeah, I mean it. the drums are pretty roomy sounding. Like, yeah, there's a good amount of room in the drum sounds. So I'm a fan. I dig it. That's and cool. I, I we were all sorry, real quick. We were looking in. We you, me, and Jared were talking about uh, uh, brown sugar, the Stones yeah. thing, and this is basically that the same miking setup, like mono U forty seven. They were using yeah. an RE fifteen on the hi hat, and then like a D12 on the kick or something. And I feel like I, I would be, I would be scared to put a Coles on the kick drum. Wouldn't you? Yeah, but all I that, don't think Daniel Renoir cares. Yeah, he doesn't care. <laughs> completely loaded. He'll just buy another one. He'll uh, just buy another one. Yeah. I think Mot- Motown did a 77 on the kick and you just put it back like three feet and kind of okay. angle it. And then you can also put a pop filter in front of it if you're really freaked out. But yeah, it's a cool sound. I'm into it. Yeah awesome sound yeah well all right so my question to you would be we we have all this very strange panning strange sounds everything's very scooped and dry what do you think it's like so like say lanois starting this or you're starting this track from the beginning you you've got this charlie Patton loop i think the main question here is like what informs those decisions to be made like what like what made him do you think go off on these insanely bold areas that he went off on i have two thoughts okay okay uh first of all you know not to be this isn't that name droppy whatever i haven't like met daniel anwar or anything but uh i have worked with some people that have met him and have worked a lot with malcolm Byrne who used to be his engineer for a long time and then went on to be his own, like a producer in his own right. And when they were talking to Lanois, one of the things he said to them was, he talked about boldness. He talked about uh, if you play, okay, let's say you're playing like a ballad and you play like a distorted punk rock bass part. If you play it with enough conviction, it just works. It's about Mm -hmm. like the confidence behind it. And so I think that's some of it. And he's been doing this forever. The guy is probably very confident in his production abilities. Um, And he's certainly proved himself. So I don't think he has anything to like lose by doing some wacky idea. And then the other thing that he talked, that Lanois talks about a lot is um, what he calls depth of field. Yeah. So if you think about like, you know, a really great, you know, black and white photograph or something, it's like there might be, especially like a portrait or something, there's, there's this really up close, you know, face or something. And then there's stuff in the background. And I feel like that's kind of what he's going for. Like the, the vocal is this really dry, really loud upfront thing. And then like the drums are a little roomier and like things kind of sit back behind the vocal um so i feel like that's where it's coming from the the panning i have no freaking clue like (laughs) it's so weird to me but somehow it works like i guess the drums get balanced out by the acoustic guitar and the loop gets balanced out by i don't know what what i've always found interesting about this track in the context of the whole record is it's there there isn't any other track on the record that is mixed like that 
mm-hmm. and I've always just you know thought what what made him do that to that track instead of you know a different track or whatever like what what was he following in the in the song that made him do that and um I don't know what the answer is you know it just it's but it's an interesting thing to ask yourself was it just a thing that just organically happened because maybe he was hearing the lo-fi sound of that Charlie Patton loop and and just kind of it's like oh that's kind of a weird thing let me let me go with that idea and you know a lot of the old recordings when you know they were recorded in mono and then when stereo came out like the drums were panned in a really weird way like they're like far left and so i wonder if you know just the influence of hearing that charlie Patton loop kind of made him think about those recordings where things are panned really weird and he was just kind of going for it or something yeah maybe so i mean there's a lot of like beatles stuff that's like what in the world like why it's like but they were on like four tracks and so like the drums and you know some background vocal or whatever on that track and then you pan it and that's just how it is um Mm -hmm. yeah could be that the other thing i he said in one of the interviews about this album was and I think maybe this is why it took him 10 years to make another solo album, apart from being busy with other production work, was uh, he was like, I really wanted to make an album where every track was unique and you didn't want to like skip uh, a track. You wanted to listen to the whole thing. So maybe it's just, you know, I feel like a lot of times I've run into the issue of for efficiency's sake, you do stuff like you do all the rhythm tracks in a batch or you do like all the drum tracks in a day or two or whatever. And like you end up with this very similar sound across um, your whole record. Yeah. Whereas I feel like this album was more record. I mean, it sounded like he recorded it in like multiple studios that he has across the world because he's a millionaire and can do that um but you know it'd be like i'm in this city and i'm gonna sorry my dog is crinkling paper behind us um you know i'm in this city i'm gonna work on this track for a few hours or a few days or whatever and stuff just came out really different and i feel like that's really cool i mean um it to me it i know the beatles were like that they're like okay we're gonna make this song today or like the, these couple of days and it's going to be this type of song. And then the next song would be completely different and they would just work yeah. on it start to finish. I feel like that's a much better way to work on things like spend two or three days on one song mm. and get it pretty close to finished and then move on. Um, I also think that probably influences the mixing. I know that he's a very like hands-on analog board, no automation performance mixer yeah so maybe he was just like hey i'm feeling pan on the drums today and he just did it you know yeah i don't know yeah it's cool well there you have it daniel lanois as tears roll by do you have anything anything else in your notes that you stumbled on well we didn't talk about the piano which i thought was Mm. i had a really okay when it first comes in it's like clearly an acoustic piano yeah. And then later in the track, I was listening to it and I was like, wait, is this a whirly? Like my ears were kind of playing 
tricks on me. It's like when it plays licks, it kind of didn't sound like a piano to me anymore. Did you have that or you're like, no, it's 100% a piano? I didn't notice that, no. I think my ears were just playing tricks on me. It could have just been that I was, my ears were like glued to the pedal steel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know, it's funny, like I, when I was making notes, I just put acoustic, JP, steel, JP, and I didn't spend any time on them because I knew that you would be like totally in, t- in tune to what they were doing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So anyway, freaking Lanois. Yeah. Um, if you don't, if you don't know Shine, definitely check it out. Um, the title track of the record is so good too. I love yeah. that song. Yeah. It's so but really the whole thing is is a journey to go on and it's uh man, great it's headphone record. Yeah, it's so good. It's one of my favorites. Yeah. And, it definitely uh, has that um you were talking about it the other day, not on the podcast, but when you were working on the sixteen track like that, it has like that um it's like the whole record is like on a black background. Yes. What yeah. is that? I don't know. I we don't need to know. figure out what that is on this I don't know. podcast to because it's out. my favorite thing in the world. Like I've been trying to figure it out for a very long time. I don't know that is. But I I I know it as soon as I hear it. I'm just like there's that that color black mm-hmm. in the in the, the music and I I don't have perfect pitch or anything. It's not like I see music in colors or whatever but that is one time when i do and it's always there and yeah i i hear it all i hear it all over uh ben harper's welcome to the cruel world mm. it's all over that record yeah. it's just it's got that black color to it in the background yeah that that that's a great way to put it is like it sounds like the music is in front of like a black backdrop i think okay here i think it well first of all dark side of the moon has it i think that's when i first became aware of it and i heard alan parsons who produced that album say that it's because there's he used very little compression but then Mm. i listened to this lanois stuff and there's clearly compression so i'm thinking that it's an arrangement thing there's there, and especially this record where everything's hard panned, right? It's e- like maybe a background vocals in the middle or something, but it's basically like hard left, hard right, center. Yeah. Maybe that just leaves and everything's mono, right? So there's nothing bleeding over in those middle sections. And I wonder if it just like, and then there's not a lot of reverb. So it's like there's nothing happening yeah. in the middle. It could be that, but I don't know. Dark Side of the Moon has a lot of reverb. So go figure. That's true. I wonder if it's a, like a space thing, like, you know, you know, which is kind of what you're saying, but like just leaving a lot of space for things kind of gives you right. that blackness of color. Um, yeah. I don't know. I haven't, I don't know what it is. I don't know. We got to figure that out, JP. Yeah. We have to figure that out and then do a whole episode on it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I yeah. think that's all. I think that's everything we got. All right. Well, um, good geek out sesh everybody check out that record if you haven't and if you have go check it out again because it's really good yeah and um we'll see you next week thanks for joining us take care chris all right peace out bye thank you so much for joining us on this episode of music production talks if you're enjoying this podcast and are finding it to be beneficial for your growth as a musician 
we would really appreciate a subscribe and a positive review on whichever platform you use for streaming. Reviews and subscribes help us grow the show and rank higher in podcast search engines. Thanks so much again, and we'll catch you next time. Thank you.